Howdy, folks. Welcome to another Hunt Harvest Health podcast. Brady Miller and I are going to be talking on this podcast. It's actually a two-part, and we're talking all things mule deer. Getting ready to head in the hills for, well, a while, and we're going to be chasing muley bucks here for probably the next six weeks or so uh, on and off of various trips. Well, yeah, six weeks. Is that too long? I mean, we come back for a few days in between there, so. Before we get into the podcast, I wanted to tell you real quick that we now have the Western Hunting Summit back online and passes are available. So we've got uh, kind of the, a similar group that you'll see as far as presenters on the website. If you go there at westernhuntingsummit.com, you'll see that Hill and I are going to be there. Mark Livesey, of course, and his wife Amy are going to be there. Uh, Corey Tinglestad is going to be there. Brian Call, Jason Phelps, a lot of the same guys. What we don't have on there is a lot of the folks that are going to be new, that are going to be new presenters. And so uh, that'll be exciting, but we're going to kind of keep that a secret for a little bit here. It's going to be a great year uh, in a great place here in Montana, and uh, we're going to have a great crew again. So just I hope you trust in us that we are going to put on a good show for you. Yes. So if you are interested and you want to get your spot because they always sell out, uh, go to westernhuntingsub.com. As Ryan always said, you can go to bypasses. There's two weekends. You can see the different types of summits we're going to have. There's an adult pass and there's a youth pass. This year, youth can come to anyone. We're not having family specific. The, the kids really rocked it last year. So if you want to bring your kid who's over nine, you can. You can buy their youth pass there. Also, we have a partner discount. So if you bring your wife, your husband... <laughs> Or your buddy, uh, you'll get $99 off their ticket. So make sure to buy them together. Also, we are doing an extra day with Ryan and Mark on the mountain. This means usually we start the summits. People roll in Wednesday night. We start Thursday morning. This year, you can come Tuesday night and spend that whole next 24 hours with Ryan and Mark on the mountain which uh, it's going to be a smaller group and the tickets for that will sell out. And we're going to have a lot more time to traipse around and kind of explore the the new country. So it'll be fun. This isn't a great Christmas present, ladies. Just think about that. The holidays are coming up. What better way to give than the experience of being here and hanging out with like-minded community and uh, learning to do things that you really love. So Anyways, okay, westernhuntingsummit.com. Any final words, Ryan, before we hop into mule deer? Good luck to those heading out and chasing mule deer this month because uh, it's the best time of year. And Ryan wants you to pray for snow, but I don't really want snow yet because I don't have all my bulbs in the ground. We need weather Mm, badly. And right now, we don't have it. We have zero weather. And I don't see, I still see nothing in the forecast and that's scary. So pray for weather, big snows, big winds, big rains, whatever, bring on the nasty. Okay, folks, sitting down here with Brady Miller from Go Hunt. We're going to knock out a mule deer podcast because it's that time of year. And Brady and I 
both absolutely love mule deer hunting. You know, I used to struggle with early season stuff I like more. Is it late season stuff I like more? You know, and honestly, you know, like bow rifle, I'm kind of to the point, you know, it'll go in and out, I'm sure. But I love this late rifle season that's coming up. Uh, I don't know if I can really do it justice as far as why, but I think some of it has to do with just the nastiness that could ensue, the weather that we need, hopefully, to make a really good hunt out of it, uh, just the unexpected. Um, but yeah, we're almost there. We are into October and things are coming quick. So brady miller how you doing i'm doing good i am excited that we're talking about mule deer and mule deer only yeah. I, I almost i almost got into a little uh it wasn't quite a heated discussion on a one of our podcasts the other day but like we had this discussion going for a while about mule deer versus elk and i started sitting up in my chair i was really just making sure i was voicing everything i could to try to like convince trail and and uh, cody nelson our optics guy that why would you hunt anything else? You know, there, there's every, everything you could ever want. Do you feel like you won the conversation? I I'm think I, I, think I got them. They, they tried to tell me about the whole meat thing. And I was like, guys, honestly, like you put a mule deer in front of me and you put elk in front of me. And I still will say mule deer meat tastes better. I shot, yeah. a, I shot a bull elk in New Mexico last year. And I, I've been eating a lot of that lately. And I'm like, man, it almost tastes sweet. It almost tastes like a, like a beef cow in a way to me and i don't know maybe i'm just so used to the mule deer flavor that now that's become like my staple but yeah it was just it was a funny conversation they were all just laughing like felt personally attacked for so long during that podcast and i was like come on guys we know what's the fair species here we do look we know you and i know that those conversations are always fun and i love having them they're always fun to uh just kind of like throw elk under the bus a little bit i have them with jason phelps all the time you know elk versus mule deer i have them actually I have them with quite a few folks surprisingly to me there are a lot of elk lovers out there that actually think elk are, are better than mule deer for some reason i guess the silver lining is you know that means more mule deer tags for they're going to be up for grabs. You know, they can keep hunting elk. We'll keep hunting mule deer. That and look, most people are conned into thinking this uh, elk thing is so spectacular. So they take all their vacation time in September, leaving us the mountains for mid to late October and throughout November. It's only a good thing. I guess we should stop talking about how great mule deer are and maybe push more people towards elk. I yep. guess we, uh, we should think about it that way. So your season up to date, we're into October. How's it going, Brady? I, I've been the guy jokingly holding down the fort here at Go Hunt. Almost everyone's been out hunting elk. And like we just discussed, most people in this office are just about done with their hunts for the year already. And I haven't even started yet. Mm -hmm. Literally, I've been watching people come back, seeing their animals. And they're all like, when are you getting out, Brady? And I'm like, well, mule deer season hasn't started yet. Like we just, like you said earlier too, like rifle hunts to me are, are special. Now I used to be the same, like kind of like velvet. And I think it comes with age. I just like a fully, you know, built out mule deer with that rack, how it looks in the, in the late fall with the nasty weather. And so I haven't been hunting yet. I'm just literally itching to get out the door. I have almost yeah. all my stuff packed right now. Got a few more little food things to dial in, but yeah. So are you but, pretty much booked out from, uh, mid-October through November is that kind of the deal yeah I, I got three and a half it feels crazy to say three and a half weeks coming up here where I'm uh 
going a little crazy here. Mm-hmm. The, the joke is at the office, like, oh, it's Brady's mule to their sabbatical. Like everyone's asking, where's Brady going? It's like, oh, he's going on sabbatical. He's just leaving the office for a long time and never coming back. And I'm just going to yeah. rotate, mm-hmm. rotate around to the tags I have. And it's something I wanted to do for a while, just bounce around and not come back to the office. And just, you know, if I need to do something work-wise, I'll just jump into a coffee shop in between a hunt. And There you go. Dude, I think you took your, your vacation time at the perfect time of year. That was a good move, honestly. Yeah, it's, it's, been, it's been really stressful leading up to this point because being gone that long and doing content, like content never rests. So like building up all the, the work schedule, get make sure all the videos, articles are lined up, like, I'm I'm due for some uh, alone time in the mountains. <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure. Well, we've got a million questions. Uh, kind of pitched it out there last night that you and I were going to be talking on a podcast. And um, gosh dang, man, I got a lot of them. So, but before we do, since you've been stuck in the office, what's going on over there at Go Hunt? What do you guys got going? Man, it's it's pretty much peak season going on right now for us. Like. There's just so much going on at, between the gear shop and just working on more maps and working on like, you know, insider enhancement stuff. Like we have such a big, you know, forecast of things we're working on behind the scenes, getting ready to launch, testing a bunch of stuff. And also it feels crazy to say, like I said, I haven't been on a hunt yet this year and I'm already thinking about hunts for next year. And so that's why we're already thinking about ways we can, you know, work on insider and add more maps tools and more maps features to help people out put more tags in their pocket and be more successful so we're just we're burning the midnight oil even though it's hunting season and it's not like a free-for-all here by any means we have to make sure we're scheduled out when we're going to take off and so it's there's a lot of people gone but there's a lot of people here a lot of moving parts going on and it's just the best time of year honestly yeah you guys have been become like very well-rounded you've got not only all the insider stuff that's uh you know gets us all excited about you know tags and where to apply and all that kind of thing but you know now you got the mapping of course the e-scouting um the 3d stuff that you guys have have come up with is unreal really really nice and i've been loving that yeah you guys got a lot going on the strategy articles everything it's uh yeah pretty cool i think we all wear a lot of hats here at go hunt Mm -hmm. i was fortunate fortunate to come down there oh this summer i know it was i don't remember when was that july august maybe all i know is 100 10 it was when you were here. bloody hot yeah definitely not my uh, cup of tea uh going to vegas in the summertime that was brutal for me uh, still had a great time uh getting to know some of the guys down there gotta hang out but um yeah well that's cool so you've got you've got all this vacation time ahead of you everybody else is winding down so now i'm sure the guys did great hopefully they they killed some stuff oh looks like they've done pretty good on elk yeah the elk year has been pretty strong at the go hunt office yeah yeah i saw chris uh looks like neville just got back from a trip they did pretty good yep they did they had a blast it sounded some like good bulls yep well cool this is all mule deer it's timely we are diving into mule deer season you and i both have big hunts coming we've put in a lot of work to prepare for these hunts and uh i'm sure we're both ready to get out there and start hiking up the hills um one thing i will say right now this weather that I'm looking at right now outside here in Montana is not good for mule deer. We got blue skies, 70 degree days. Uh, it's not even freezing and we're well into October and usually that's not the case and, uh, no snow in the hills. So that's a little spooky for me because some of my favorite hunts 
are migration hunts. They take a little bit of snow to make these things pop. And without the weather, uh, they can be a struggle fest. So it requires uh, even more physical ability to go a little bit further, put a lot more miles on, and usually get a little higher on the hill. I've literally been tracking the weather every single day, morning, evening, trying to get extended forecasts as I can. I've even thought about paying to get better weather on my phone so I can get further extended just to see when that snowstorm is going to finally hit. I want it nasty. I want the snow. Oh, it just makes it makes mule hunting so much more fun when you add all those crazy elements in there, and it's it's, it's not yeah. gonna be, it's not going to be easy. Right I've now. been looking at the weather. I got out to a fourteen day, and it stresses me out just seeing all those sunny days are coming. Now I did see it looks like where are we about thirteen days out? We got a little something something coming in, maybe. Oh, hopefully, yeah. hopefully that comes. Hopefully they're just wrong, and it comes in about five or six days. Turns drastically because uh, I know. I'm stressed out about it. I know guys out there right now that are already in the mountains and they're having a tough go. They're getting these warm days, a uh, little bit of movement in the morning, a little bit in the evening. Uh, we all know what that's like. And then most of the day, it's pretty dead. Yeah, so, Got to dig them stuff. out. That's tough. Oh, let's see. Liam Gillikin. He asked, cover the patience aspect of holding out for a mature buck. He says here, I don't hear a ton about that topic. Any uh, any thoughts on that, Brady? Talk about having patience to hold out, pass on some of those less mature bucks, and um, try to put your tag on something a little more mature. I think a lot of it, it kind of has to come down to knowing what might be in the area. I mean, it'd be great if you had some prior experience to it, but like for me this year, I'm going to some new spots. So patience is going to be huge for me. And I think it just comes down to knowing that. The train you're in, maybe you've done some e-scouting, you have prior experience in other states or other units, and you kind of use it as a back in the background, knowing that, hey, I'm in the right spot, I'm in the right terrain, I'm looking at the right habitat at the right time of year, and if the animals aren't there, if you're not seeing anything at all, I think you got to start moving around, you got to either go higher, go steeper, go nastier places, but if you're starting to see some bucks and starting to see some smaller bucks, you know, you're kind of getting in that little zone where they might be, but still just might be like, you know, don't force yourself to look at one one slope the whole time, whether it's an east facing or west facing, you might have to start digging into some north facing stuff and just knowing that your area does hold deer and just being patient day and day. But if I went, you know, maybe, gosh, a morning and evening, and then another morning and didn't see anything. That's probably about the time I'm going to be like, hey, I need to go, go put some burn some boot leather and go check out some new spots. But you know, maybe if I, if I saw like a big giant buck track though in that area and maybe, you know, might hold me tight a little longer, but if I'm not seeing anything. I got to start moving because, you know, days might be winding down on my hunt, burning vacation time. And I think patience is the hardest part. You just got to go with your gut sometimes. Yeah, it's true. You know, I think, you know, we've all heard, you know, patience kills the buck, right? I think that's a saying from the great Brian Barney over there, he's used it and said it a lot. I think we all know that's the case. You know, I can remember in the younger days and like, you know, teens, late teens, twenties, even thirties. Um, I didn't have the patience I have now. Um, you know, so, but then again, at the same time, I wasn't going for necessarily the, the oldest buck on the hill either in my early years, but over time, I think with experience, you kind of know your goals. You kind of know what you're going for. I think you and I are both alike in that, you know, we want to take the most respectable animal on the mountain. 
if we can, if we can lay eyes on it, if we do happen to lay eyes on it, it's real easy to pass on some of those less than mature bucks, right? You got to go, you got something to go for, you know, patience can be the absolute game changer. It can be what sets, sets your hunt apart and puts big animal um, on the ground. It can also kill you on a hunt and send you home without filling a tag. And I think if you are of the mindset that you want to go for mature bucks, that's your game. That's your goal. That's where you want to be. You want to have bucks like Brady Miller has on his wall. Be prepared to not fill every tag. You have to, you have to be okay with that. You have, so, to, you have to eat, you have to eat tags. And like you said, the patience yeah. thing, like, yeah, even if, like on the video right now, the buck right behind me, that was a buck. I glassed that same basin every single morning, never saw anything mature. Finally, one day later in the hunt, we still kept around that area being patient because it just looked perfect. Enough timber, yeah. enough steepness, just remoteness away from roads and trails. Finally, I glassed it in the evening. And this buck finally showed itself out of the dark timber. There's a little right. bit of hint of rut in the air, kind of getting going, I think, maybe pull them out. But, like, not giving up on that spot was a really great thing. But, like, also could have burned me, like you said, too. Just, sure. just got to kind of gotta feel the temperature out, I think, of the mountain and figure out where they're going to be at and what you're seeing in other places. And it's a, it's a, it's a puzzle. There's, it's, I always say mule deer hunting is an art and it's not a science. Like, you just got to feel it out while you're there and figure out what you're going to do. And that's a tough one to tell people or, you know, try to explain as you go with your gut. And that's where I think you, you look at these places where, um, you know, I'm like you, I'll, I'll try to hit new areas every year. It's exciting to go look on the other side of that ridge. But at the same time, I do like to go to old haunts as well. Stick my head in there, check them out before I go to other places because I know them so well. You know, I know if there's no snow, eh, I'm probably going to see if there is a buck, I'm going to see it pretty quick. Um, if not, I can blast out of there. If there's a forecast that we've got a couple nasty days, well, this is an area that I've seen what happens when you get those nasty days and you chop a couple of thousand feet off the top. This is where they settle. Probably worth the wait and play the patience game. And you may be um, swimming in deer in a couple few days looking at the weather. It, it is kind of a gut thing. And I think... Uh, you know, with experience and also knowing your area and seeing its history and seeing how it produces um, year after year with different conditions, because every year is slightly different. That's going to really help you in the end. Yep. So, 100%. all right, let's hop on to another one. This is from, uh, this is an enlightened athlete. So I'd love to know your guys' approach on glassing strategies for muleys during the rut. Are you only worried about finding does do you like to find them in their beds and make a play do you like to find them and let them bed or make a play before they bed i'll cover i'll cover the bedding part really quick i don't think i'm thinking back on most of the bucks i've hunted during the rut and they don't bed for very long at all mm -hmm. and and so like i think if you're going to wait for them to bed you might be putting yourself at a disadvantage either it's going to get dark on you or they're going to go into some little hole and then dive off whatever finger ridge you're not gonna be able to locate him again so yeah. during the rut it's kind of it's kind of like you got to move on him when you can because a buck could check out a doe group and literally 20 minutes later he could be three miles away that doe sure. group might not be hot and they're just cruising which also then leads me into the glassing side of it is i will definitely glass for doe groups and try to find those doe groups and if there's a buck on there a buck i might be interested in i'll try to you know get closer and closer but if there's 
there was no big bucks on there and it's just a nursery of small deer and little bucks around there i'm gonna push country like you have to cover country i think during the rut to just find those areas where the bucks want to be and maybe there's maybe still solo maybe there's a little smaller doe group but I think it's all this about in the rut covering country and not pigeonholing yourself in one spot, expecting there to be a giant buck coming with these five does that are sitting there by themselves. So you can't just sit there all day and just wait and wait and wait. Might want to check on them maybe a day or two later. If you have a possibility to do that, it's not too far away, but just covering all those angles of a mountain trying to find it because there's that buck's there if he's if that's his home range and or if he migrated into somewhere for the rut, like he knows it like he knows how to hang out right there and wait for things to happen so i just i like covering country and just glassing as hard as i can and that's checking out doe groups is also important but it's a mix yeah for sure yeah i think the type terrain you're hunting makes a huge difference right um when when asked about you go for them you know in their bed only or or do you try to you know make your play while they're up on their feet i think if I'm thinking about different scenarios I've had in the past, you know, wide open country where I don't feel like I, I can lose this deer. Like if I decide to make a play and I got a thousand yards, I got to get over here to, to get in tight and I lose, I lose sight of him. Certain terrain, that's fine. I'm not worried. I'm probably going to pick him back up. I'll be able to find him if he beds down during that time frame or moves around. Then I can also think of areas where, you know, there's all these little cut ridges. And if that doe is on his feet and he's, He's got a few does, and, you know, sometimes they'll, he'll stay with the does. Sometimes he won't. Sometimes, you know, uh, they start to bed down and he'll break off and he'll go 300 yards over here and he'll bed above them. If I'm in that terrain, I don't really want to take my eyes off him until he beds because there's a good chance when I'm making my approach, he may disappear. He may go over this ridge. They go left. He goes right. And I lose, lose sight of him. And I, I use that buck for the day. So I think it, it just varies. You can't really just have, there's not really one answer to that question. So oftentimes, yeah, it, it makes much more sense to let them bed. Sometimes it makes more sense to make your play and get there as quick as you can while he's, while he's around. So yeah, that's, that's a tough one to have just one good answer for, but approach on glassing strategies for muleys during the rut. I'm with you. I think, you know, finding does is important. Again, I go back to different topographies are way different. Like yeah, there's areas where I could sit on a handful of does and it's the only handful for, you know, a mile or two. I'm probably going to sit there for a little bit. If I'm in an area where I know there's a pocket of does here, there's a good chance there's a pocket over here. There's another pocket over here. I'm going to try to keep moving around, bouncing around and checking all those, those pockets of does, try and find the buck, you know, instead of just sitting, sitting back and waiting. So it's just a situation by situation type deal. And the topography dictates a lot of that, I think. Yeah. Sometimes it's amazing too. Like you see a doe group and you pick it apart with some binos and all of a sudden like, yeah, there's no buck here, but you put a spotter up and start really digging into that terrain near there. Oh yeah. All of a sudden there's so many bucks that are just bedded above them bedded like you know 50 yeah. 100 yards away that you just can't really see very well and it's like it's also yeah. just not giving up on your optics and using big glass to really pick apart that train near there because it could just give you a little sign or maybe see a little bit of a track going into a piece of piece of brush or a tree and that's where that buck is and yeah you know, oftentimes when they're um you know well into the rut you know those early mornings usually the bucks are on their feet generally not always the case but, you know, if you pop into a basin, you know, let's say nine, 10 o'clock, noon, one, two, um, you know, and, and you glass down in there, you see a group of does bedded and, uh, and you don't see a buck with them. 
that's not a situation where I'm just going to bomb right out and go check out a new group. Cause how often does that buck just split off? Like you said, he may go hundred yards or 300 yards. And usually I've found, I don't know why they, they tend to go above them. Um, so they can kind of look down on their goes and it's a short shot to get right back with that group. But, you know, depending on time of day, you know, you kind of have to make your, make your call there as well. I would say mm-hmm. Cody Simons. I want to know how you guys manage glassing in areas that have several small little pockets and ridges where there isn't one obvious best viewpoint over the area. That sounds like typical of everywhere across the West in a way. Some we get some of those mm-hmm. big ridges. Yeah, I think, you know, a lot of us have talked about grabbing that master vantage. You know, we use the term master vantage. It's the one that sees the most country. And that's great. And it makes sense. And, you know, I often look for that when I'm spring bear hunting or things, you know, places where it makes sense to do that. I will say there's also a lot of areas that I can think of just at the top of my head where I hunt every year. They're not these giant, vast areas where you're you're looking at miles of country. They are just that. You know, I grew up in Washington State, and it's pretty rare that you find an area that you're looking at this vast country. You know, on occasion, you'll come across a spot where you can see like two or three different ridges that are burned, and you'll have that advantage. But most of the time, you are looking in small pockets. You're looking into maybe one av shoot. You're spending some time there. Maybe you stick it out. Maybe you don't. If you see some like a, some sign or you've got history with that place, uh, you've seen a track, it might make sense to stick it out. But I love those little pockets. I feel like these days, especially, everybody's grabbing those master vantage points. And they're looking for those in their e-scouting. And uh, oftentimes, it's those little tucked away spots that don't jump out at you on a map that will find you the more mature bucks you know bucks know if they go in the open they get shot yeah or if, they, if, they, yep. if they don't know that they're shot and they're gonna, <laughs> when they get older they learn it real quick that their buddies aren't around and that's those little pockets yep. man and sometimes it's just like even dropping a little bit of elevation in a little area it might open up the door a little bit to be able to see a little bit bigger vantage point or you know, just working around and like, like you said, like those little pockets hold, hold bucks. And if not, it's going to be all that edge habitat right near there. That could be still really good to be glassing into. Like, that's why I love if we can have some snow on this and you're glassing a small pocket, I think it opens the door a lot more than, you know, early sure. October when there's no snow on the ground. Cause I mean, there's, there's deer there. And I think if you can just check out as many pocket, little small pockets as you can, maybe in one morning and not sit there for too long, but also just be mobile even go check out that one spot, come right back to it 30, 45 minutes later. Yeah. Instead of sitting there all day. And then the next day you're like, what do I do now? Which should have hit them all in one morning, maybe if you could. And it does come in handy to if you're hunting with two or three guys, obviously we do this all the time. You know, we split up. And so everybody's grabbing a pocket. You just cover more ground that way. You check in midday, end of the day, y'all kind of put your sense in there and see what you saw and uh and then make a decision from that. But yeah, I um I actually prefer, I know I was hunting Nevada for a handful of years there. I started noticing that, yeah, I was seeing groups of bucks on these big, long, open ridges, but so is everybody else. And those are the easy ones for people to navigate country, put miles on. And so I was looking at country that others were as well. So I started breaking off of those main ridges, taking these little cut ridges, and then looking into the, you know, right, left basins from that, these small pockets that get unlooked at. That's where I found my best bucks. Uh, it was consistent. 
that those best bucks that I was seeing and some of the best bucks I've, I've ever taken were in places like that. Very small, all areas that easily can get overlooked because they don't have a master vantage that just grabs miles and miles of glassing. And I think you're right. I think the big bucks know that and they've seen their buddies get shot and their mule deer are very good at taking a piece of topography, a small piece of topography and just staying there and being unseen and not traveling around so much. Yeah. That little micro habitat that just holds them tight. Austin Bell. Oh, this is always an interesting when people talk about feed. Um, what type of feed and or elevation zones do you focus on for late season hunts? Curious as to your answer on this, Brady. Uh, I'll, I'll throw one out there. So some of the late season stuff, I'm looking for that areas where I have a lot of like oak brush meets sagebrush, a little bit kind of intermixed with some of the aspen. So that's going to be like that nine and a half to nine and a half thousand, maybe down to like seven. It obviously depends on what state you're in. But some of the late season hunts that I have, usually that's some of the terrain I'm kind of featuring in because like it has the cover to hold deer. Sagebrush, you know, deer come to that during the late season when they're migrating down. So that's a good place for them to stage for the winter. That's going to pull the does in. And you're looking for all of that, like, you know, bitter brush type habitat. If you can find that, usually it's deer gold mine. And again, just areas too, or some dark timber nearby, like they can't, like, yeah, there's some areas where they live out in the open, but a big buck doesn't like to live out in the open. So he's going to want some cover. So wherever the cover meets some of those open little areas and you have some oak brush, but you have some sagebrush pockets, like that's going to kind of get me interested a little bit enough to spend some time there. And then, you know, all the, all the deer that time of year too are, you know, on that woody browse. So they're not going to be really grazing on grasses or anything like that. And it's got to, yeah. I think it takes experience to know what you're kind of looking at because it all kind of looks the same during the late season, but you'll be able to tell after a while, like what the elevations these deer are hanging out at, what's the terrain. And that's why I think one of the best things someone can do when they're hunting is, you know, literally pulling out your map, marking every single deer you see it might seem ridiculous at first, but it's like, after a while, it's like, you have your own little deer telemetry study, you know, like, you know, then these doe groups are hanging out here during this time of year. These bucks are here during this time of year. What slope are they on? What, what face of the mountain are they on? Like you're starting to build a data set. Yeah. That eventually you can go back and like, look at, and then look at a satellite imagery on 3d and be like, okay, that was the train I saw in person. This is what it looks like on satellite imagery. And then try to figure out how to extrapolate that to future hunts. It's like, you're, you're creating your own deer study when you're out hunting. And it's like, yeah, you're out there hunting, you're hunting a deer. You're trying to kill a deer, but. I like to collect the data when I'm out there. If I'm out there, I'm going to try to maximize it every single second. And that's why I look at what terrain they're feeding on. Take a picture even of that vegetation you see. You walk by, you're like, oh, yeah, this is, you know, bitterbrush or these deer are hanging out and all these ceanosis. And just taking pictures of it so you know later on what it, what it looks like in person. Yeah, you're just kind of putting the pieces together, right? You're dialing it in. And I, I say dialing it in all the time because it feels like, um, there's always a little bit of that, no matter what you're hunting, whether it's bears or elk or deer or whatever, you're always just kind of, like you said, you're, you're dropping waypoints, you're dropping features on your map often. And eventually you can kind of pan out and look and see where you've got this pattern of spotted deer, you know, or mature bucks that you're seeing, taking notes on, on where you're seeing these things. And eventually things start making sense as to why you're seeing them here. And you can kind of duplicate that. Or replicate that by looking at new country looking for those similar features yeah and, and the deer feed 
question. It, it's a tough one for me because I don't really have a good answer as to what they're feeding on. Cause I've seen deer in rock shoots, you know, feeding with goats. I've seen them in sheep country. I've seen them on open yellow knobs. I've seen them, you know, in, in burns and bitter brush sage. They're not like elk. They're not going to be in a meadow and feeding on grass. You know, they're so, um, good at just feeding on whatever's available yeah they utilize everything they do they can literally they could literally feed pretty pert near everywhere in some of these big mountain ranges and i've seen them in places that you would never expect them to be you know nose to the ground um grabbing grabbing foods i uh i just know more you know i don't really think about the food aspect when it comes to mule deer food or water terrain features and elevation is a huge thing as we roll into this late season it's more about snow line i don't know about you but i like to stay as high as i possibly can this time of year and then work my way back down the hill i really like to be at that top end maybe that wouldn't be the case if i was just going to fill a tag on a middle-aged buck i don't know my opinion is on the older mature bucks that i'm looking for they tend to be right up at the top and uh the snow is what drives them down or those ladies pull them down (laughs) once you get so late you know if you get into november well into november and you don't have the snow to pull them down they're coming down anyway to check the ladies october it's almost a requirement bigger bucks down low you got to have the snow or they're staying up there i've I've killed quite a few of my biggest deer above ten thousand feet in even november yeah. Like they live up there. They want to be up there. There's less pressure up there. And as I, I know, I probably, it sounds old to people listen to me a lot, but it's like, as long as those deer have the nutrition requirements they need at that time of year without human interference, like a big old buck is going to be want to want to be at the top of the mountain, unless the smell of ladies brings them down. Or like I said, even snow, but like it could be belly deep snow. I've seen elk migrate out of the mountains when it's cold. Elk are big animals. And I've seen mule deer still hang up hang up high where there wasn't any elk what are they feeding on then it's like you look at that landscape where they're at like you said it could be rocks it could be just craggy nasty stuff yeah, it's just, they can survive yeah i remember when i was a kid talking to a a, a state um agent in washington and he i talked to him multiple years in a row and he always told me about the the biggest bucks that he saw when he was doing his flyovers and they'd go up and they'd chop around and they'd look in these areas and, and get these winter counts the old crusties, the oldest of old, you know, the big, dark, heavy chocolate horn suckers that they were finding were up to their briskets in snow. Often they were the very last animal off the hill for those big muley bucks. You'd think that put them as easy cougar bait, um, you know, mountain lion bait, but uh, inevitably that was it. That was, um, that was something that he recognized and noticed year after year, the largest bucks that he would see on those surveys were at the top and literally up to their brisket and they just did not want to come down. I hunted areas. uh, I think a lot of it also has to do with how long that migration route is. I can think of areas where the migration for some of these deer literally will take them an hour if they want to get down, get down to their (laughs) their winter range. Top is here and they're up there at seven, 8,000 feet. All I got to do is spend an hour and a half, two hours, and they're in their winter zone. So obviously, it's going to take a lot of snow to get them down. Um, they will stay up there far longer in deeper snow than I want to be hiking around it. 
And then there's areas that I've seen these really long drawn out migrations where, you know, you get these 50 mile plus migration routes. The first sniff of snow, they are moving and moving fast. And they have these mass trails, very easy to follow like cattle paths out of the high country. And they start that migration and they're getting out of there. They're just, they're just moving. You know, I know several of those units where they start migrating so early. It's like, why? Just a, like you said, a flake of snow and they're gone. They know it's time to get out of there. I remember one hunt, it was probably a dozen years ago or so, and I was in the deer. I mean, I was being picky, uh, too picky probably. I was seeing good bucks. I was just up there solo. Had this unexpected snow just out of nowhere. You know, it was it was actually pretty warm. And then all of a sudden that night, temperatures crashed. We got a sniff of snow, like maybe a couple few inches. And that next day, I could not find a deer anywhere nowhere spent the day and um and then i i kind of put pieces together and started dropping out i had to go all the way back down to the bottom where the trailhead was and then hop in the rig and drive south and and get down a long ways before i started seeing tracks glass and tracks back up on the hill so yeah those deer during that snowstorm they were already booking it and um they weren't going back so yeah it's it's interesting how different uh, areas and topographies uh, they just behave so differently. Locating mature bucks in October—that's a pretty. Uh, I'm sure Brady can answer that. You're getting ready to head into October. You're looking for mature bucks. What are you doing? I am going to places no one else wants to go. That's the. It sounds like the simplest thing ever, and sure, you could kill deer close to a vehicle, like low elevation stuff but like i want those old deer that just die of old age in the big mountains and so like to me it's like the places i can find them in october is far away from people as i can get in the top of the mountains it sounds like it's, it sounds almost too simple to believe but it's like just going places where you look at that and you're like yeah no one would want to go there and that's where a big old buck's gonna probably be and if you don't see him that right away he's, he's somewhere buried in that timber could be you know the, the on the other side of it but he's they're going to be there somewhere and if i don't see deer i'm just going to keep moving and keep covering country and eventually i'm going to be like wow i am so far away from my vehicle now like what am i doing out here but that's when i'll probably get into deer and yeah. i mean that literally describes why you know mule deer are so addicting because you just gotta the more you work the more you're going to see the more success you're going to have it's just putting yourself out there in October because it's the hardest month to hunt. Literally it is. It frustrates me big time, but that's when all the tags are. And that's when I yeah. hunt every single year. So you just eventually you learn these little areas that don't do hold deer terrain features. And like I said earlier, you just got to mark everything, but steep, deep, nasty, nastier the better. Oh, I like it. Yeah. I think of this, uh, this saying that I've said a million times, it's where they grow old and die, right? They just never get seen by people. I want to go where they, they just grow old and die. I was talking to this, this old guy, I used to tell him stories about, you know, me and my cousin going in and hunting these, these big mealy bucks. And he just threw that little phrase out there. He said, man, you guys just go where they grow old and die. And uh, that stuck with me. I've always used that because it's true. That's where we're always looking for. And that's kind of how my e-scouting goes when a mule deer, you know, I have a hard time talking about features that I'm looking for when it comes to, you know, this is the type of terrain I'm looking for or whatnot. It's literally finding access points that other people can get to easily. I'm avoiding those. I'm trying to separate, uh, whether that's in miles uh, up and over a mountain, 
the rocky terrain that keeps people out, a hidden basin that people just look past, a river you got across, hiking off a, a road that doesn't have a trail. It, it's it's just like you said, it's it's all about trying to avoid people and getting into those little tucked away places where they just never get seen. They roll and die. Nobody ever, you know, even uh, has a chance at them. And that's always every year. That's the goal to find those little spots. So I'm with you on that one. Um, that's kind of my objective in October as well. It can be really tough hunting, obviously, um, you know, big snowstorms and weather. I've always found by October 20th, my birthday, October 20th, every year, they are getting sniffy somewhere in the mountains in elevation. I always see bucks. Either it's a quick rip down, checking does, heading back. That day has always been good for me. Um, that kind of like, this is the start of the mule deer rut on October 20th. They're just starting to think about it. So somewhere in the mountains, somewhere not too far from you, if you're up there, they're probably getting a little sniffy, checking does starting about that time. Even when the weather's less than nasty but uh it makes it all the better when we get those uh those big snowstorms early snowstorms in october man that's a game mm. changer not just for finding deer but even getting water because as most probably know in a lot of these places where these big old deer live there's there's no water because they get all their water from from vegetation when they where they're yep. browsing on so it's it's a struggle for us trying to hunt them in october when there's no weather and <laughs> elk are easy to east scout. i mean you know, live say you can put people right into the elk when he's uh, doing his e-scouting because there's a certain features like elk need water. They need this. They need, you know. A north-facing slope with a bench. Boom. I found yep. elk. Bam. And mule deer aren't like that at all. You just got to go find them. You got to mm -hmm. put yourself in the nastiest country. E-scouting breaks style. Eastern Montana type deer. This is from Mike Mulligan. You got any tips on e-scouting breaks? That can be a, a struggle. I guess it's my go-to answer is similar to what we just talked about, though. I, I'm not looking for features. I'm looking for hideaways away from yep. folks. Exactly. So the, the only feature I look for is any sort of timber, whether it's those like little juniper bushes or stuff like that, that can just hold deer in it because they'll want to feel secure. And also a lot of times that's going to be on the stuff that's blocked from like a northwest wind. Because, that, you know, that wind, when that comes, those deer, whatever reason, that open country, they hate the wind, especially that late yeah. season. So they're going to tuck in those little pockets on that side away from the northwest wind. And that's what's going to suck for you because you're going to have to glass into the wind to find them. Yep, that's the tough part, right? <laughs> the deer want that situation. So you're not going to want to sit there because it can be super cold. But it also it's just like there's so many people who just drive roads in that country and never get out of their truck. And all those little pieces of topography that are just over a little hill that you just, you can't see from a vehicle when you're driving by, those keep going, but that's where the deer is going to hang out because that's a little safe spot. It's literally a pocket that's untouched and it might be less than a half mile from a road or yeah. even five, like 400 yards from a road. Like it's super close to any little two track thing. And it's just figuring out those places that people overlook or utilizing the, you know, all the, the public private little checkerboard areas where it's kind of hard to access maybe one little spot as you do a bunch of walking to get around a big private section. Once you do, it opens up into a bigger public area and then there might be some draws and stuff like that, that have a little bit of, you know, timber in it or a little bunch of brush. And that's, I think where all the deer hide. That's, that's a lot of times I found deer just again, <laughs> it's similar to mountain hunting, 
but it is a little bit different. Like there's more overlooked areas, I think. Yeah, I think I think eastern, like eastern Montana type country. I mean, there's eastern Washington, which is similar to eastern Montana. There's there's a lot of that type topography breaks type country. I think people get sucked into these roads. They feel like they can see a lot from the roads. So they're like, well, I can see all this country out here. I should be able to see them if they're there, but that is not the case. Like you can't believe um, in some of that wide open stuff, how those bucks can just disappear and never to be seen again. And you feel like you're seeing everything. I think the great mystery of hunting that type country is like you said, most people don't get a half mile from the road because they feel like they're seeing stuff from the road. They're still seeing deer, but it's, it's a lot of young bucks and does and things like that. And those, those older, more wise bucks, there's no way they're going to put themselves uh, next to a road. Now it happens. Guys shoot them off roads every year. If you want to be consistent on breaks type country, you got to treat that country like any mountain and you got to put yourself where you're not seeing cars, hearing cars, getting into those little, those places where they're just not going to get seen. And those bucks, you know, I've noticed they don't really travel that far. The older bucks, you know, I'll find a buck in an area and he, per, he has a pretty small little range because there's quite a few does and he'll tend to those little does and he'll have his little pocket. And, uh, he doesn't necessarily move for miles like you think he would in that open country. I feel like as they get older in there, in that area, that breaky type country, they move less and less with age versus those youngs, young bucks, twos, threes, young fours. Those are the ones that you just see bombing all over the place and they're cruising, cruising country and, and just putting the miles on and seeing a, finding a pocket of does here and then finding a pocket of does here where it's more mature bucks. They're carving out one and they're sticking with her until they breed And that's what I think some people fail too, because like, it's like a tease you see so many deer like i would describe it as like nature's arcade there's just animals everywhere sometimes like you get in these good zones and it's like like well we're seeing bucks and it's working so we're going to continue to travel and just keep putting on miles on a vehicle and hopping out maybe a little bit and glassing and you're just that's not where the big bucks are there might be all those little bucks that's what all little little tiny does are but like there's some hidden stuff off those little areas you just gotta go walk through it and it's cold and nasty and the wind is always blowing feel like we could scream this forever, Brady, and people are going to continue to do that same. They're going to keep rolling that same play. It's going to be uh, sitting in a truck or barely getting away from the truck and zipping right back to it. I guess that's fortunate for us. The one thing about eastern Montana-type areas is, um, especially when it gets cold, it can be extremely windy, and you can hit minus temps pretty fast. And that, those are the days that I love because there's just not many folks out there they, they, they disappear quick. They usually stay, hold up in their hotel rooms. <laughs> if they're hunting out of a small town, uh, you just don't see folks when you hit the minus temps. And um, those are the days that you, you really do well, especially minus temps comboed with the drive to get away from those roads on foot. I mean, you're putting yourself in a little bit of a harmful situation with how cold it can be. But if you go unprepared, and just know that um, you're going to still need to get those miles away from the roads, you're probably going to do pretty well. Yeah. I, I even try to take a bunch of circles and mark little, you know, radius and measurements from like these towns that are near there in Eastern Montana, because like you said, people camp or stay in hotel rooms that time of year. And so you got to think every single day, they got to leave their hotel room. They got to wake up super early in the morning. They're not getting any sleep. 
they got to drive long distances to go hunting. They might be hunting all day. They might come back or whatever. But then in the evening, they also got to drive really far. Where I am more rested, staying out there camping. And then I know like that distance they can go. Like there's like a certain distance people are willing to travel away from a hotel room every day and then go back. And it's like, go a little further than that. All of a sudden you're in no man's land. You're like, where's all these people at? I saw all these people at the gas station and I was fueling up before I came out here because they have to, you know, they're just, they just want to be nice. They want to have a comfy meal, which I get it. It's fun. It's part of the hunting part of it, but I want to hunt where no one else wants to hunt. I want those deer that don't see people. And that, that's terrain. You can still kind of find it, but it's just figuring out how to out hunt the hunters. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. Okay. So Garrett Cordell, here's this question. Uh, going into the back country, is there a that's too deep situation? Easy answer is no. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm with you. Definitely got no physical capabilities. You got to be able to pack out an animal, seasonality, whatever it might be. But there's no limitation on it because, again, this is this is something you might have been planning for 365 days. This one trip. So why limit it on distance? You're like, well, I should probably turn around and go back and move to a different area instead of keeping go- keep going further and further and further. A couple of years ago, I ended, I ended up over 20 miles away from my vehicle, literally 20 miles. Yeah, it wasn't like a straight line 20. It's like zigzagging moving around, but it was far. If I did the straight line distance, it would probably still be close to 18, 19 miles, 17, something like that. But we, that's why we had the, the film last year, One More Ridge, because like I'm addicted to going one more ridge, one more ridge further trying to figure that out because you just gotta go for it whatever it takes right (laughs) whatever it takes like to get your tag put on the buck that you're you're going for i know i give grief to livisay all the time because um you know he's done a lot of these presentations at the western hunting summit you know he he talks about he's talking elk specific so it makes more sense but he's he's talking he's putting radiuses on areas abilities on the on people's abilities um get to a certain distance, like know your abilities. And then I always chime in. I'm like, just make sure that you don't have limitations. That's your goal. Try to get rid of all those limitations as far as distance, do whatever it takes, put yourself in the position that's going to best fill that tag with what you're going for. Um, now, obviously we're talking about mule deer. We can one trip a mule deer out if we have to, it's going to suck. That's why we're mule deer hunters. Yeah, but we can do it. So there is no too deep. You can get it out. It's just going to take some time. It's going to suck a little bit, but you can do it. Mike Smith is asking, uh, best strategy for patterning migration quarters for early to mid-November pre-rut rut movement. So best strategy for patterning migration quarters for early to mid-November. I haven't hunted a lot of true migration areas, but I think one of the best way to do it is literally utilize migration maps that these some of these state agencies put out yeah sometimes i feel like that's getting to be the fine line of too much information to give or you know like knowing Mm -hmm. exact little migration places but it could put you in a great spot knowing like hey during this during this time of year during the extreme you know weather conditions this is where they're seeing the majority of the the mule deer and then you can overlay that with you know public land layers on top of it and start kind of painting a picture of where you might find some of these deer during migration yeah, I mean, I guess I'm old school when I think about these migration areas. I've found most of them on my feet on these late hunts. You know, obviously there's these historical areas, and yet I still treat it like anything else. You know, I love to, you know, if, if there's this um, this area that people know of, and I'm, I'm thinking of several, where you can go and you can watch mule deer all winter. 
and uh, some good ones. I'm still looking at areas that are kind of tucked away and hidden just aside from the main migration. You know, I, I've got uh, an area that I hunt. It is somewhat of a migration type hunt. It's dependent on snow, um, but it's not a main migration. It's still very, very, very few deer that come through this spot, but there's a handful. And oftentimes there'll be one or two really good bucks in that group, but it's not like this main migration. It's just a quarter that they use off this certain mountain to get to this lower country where there's some feed for the winter. And so it's not this major deal, but what I found in finding areas like that is I also don't find all the other folks that are focusing on those migration corridors and, and those can be pretty busy at times. So, you know, that's kind of what I'm just like any other thing, you know, I'm looking for these little side ridges and side areas and places that aren't getting looked at even, even during those migrations. I will say there's some migration areas that, you know, I do like to start at the top, like we talked about, kind of push my way up, start at the top. And uh, if we get that weather, I am looking for where those upper does start to settle in. You know, there's some soft areas up there where year after year, I will find groups of does kind of, um, when I say soft areas, you know, some of the country I hunt, it's nasty. You know, you got rocks and sheep and goats and all the things and heavy timber at times, but then there's these little soft spots where they, they level out almost like bench, bench, like where elk like to be and those areas i do find that when the snows hit those does will settle into and those can be some of the best and historically they are the best areas where i'll find bucks coming in year after year they always hit these same spots but that's just because the does do they come into those little soft spots and, and hold up off this main migration corridor starting high should be a, a big trend for people because we mentioned that quite a bit yeah, for, for sure. Down. So John Worley, he asks, uh, he makes the statement, I was watching a mule deer during archery season for about four weeks, three days a week and a week before rifle season. I wasn't able to go watch him. And when rifle season came, I couldn't find him. Did he just hunker down? Was it because of the traffic or pressure? Or did they move out of the country after they shed the velvet? I can answer that. In, in the past, I have gone back in November, and he is usually within a mile of where I watched him in the summer. That's his statement. I think that that one right there can be summed up pretty easy. He's there. You just got to figure out how to utilize the terrain or what terrain he is utilizing during that time and try to find him. He's not going to leave. That's his core area. Yeah. Like he can, I do it a lot too, like even summer scouting and then some of these muzzleloader tags that have you, where you find him in the summers, where you kill him in the muzzleloader hunt, is where you also kill him in the rifle hunt. They're just utilizing whatever side of the mountain differently during that time of year and obviously might not come in the open anymore but like they're still there somewhere even with even hunter pressure i i blew out a buck a couple of years ago and killed him you know three days later in the same basin exact yeah. same spot after i blew him out like he don't he doesn't want to leave it because that's his home i don't feel like mule deer ever go too far um you know and, and elk elk will just flat out haul out of country whereas mule deer they just typically get a little sneakier. You know, they find a little spot and they don't move around a whole lot when they get pressure. And that's why they're the most challenging animal to hunt, in my yeah. opinion. You can also think of like predator impact too on a mule. They're like, a mule there leaves a spot that he's known forever and he goes in a new area. He doesn't know, you know, what the predators and mountain lions are doing. Like that's a dangerous situation mm -hmm. for a mule there to go into where this other area he knows 
every little bit, bit about it. And I think you can just think of it that way as like, what do the predators do if you know a new mule moves in there? He's gonna get that thing pretty quick. Cause like you go, I go to a big city that I've never been in before. I feel like I'm very vulnerable right now. But if I'm staying in my little backyard where I've been all summer, like I know every little nook and cranny, all my neighbors, I know what they're doing when they wake up, when they go to bed, because you see them every day. New areas are, are difficult. Speaking to what do they do when they uh, drop that shit, that velvet, you know, you know, the easy answer there is, yeah, oftentimes in certain areas, once they drop the shed or the velvet, they do drop a little elevation, you know, they'll settle into, you know, more of a timbered environment. Sometimes they'll drop down 500 feet in elevation, maybe a thousand. And then they tend to work their way back up uh, to the tops again is what I've found. And so I've, I've absolutely had this happen a million times in the past. You know, I, I used to do a lot more summer scouting than I do now um, back in Washington state in some of that Alpine area. And I would see all kinds of bucks, you know, throughout late July and through August. A lot of those bucks, after about the first three, four days, they're starting to lose that velvet. You may only have the first few days, and after that, they're gone, and they're gone for a while. And then you get well into October, and you start seeing those bucks come back. But all they're doing is dropping down a little bit and typically not moving these long distances. They're just getting out of your out of your visual. But they're there, but they can be really tough to find once they get down into that timber. That's one thing I've noticed. So there are definitely times when they can be extremely tough to, to go for. So I've got a question here. Somebody's asking specific to Washington. High buck hunt. You know, know much about the high buck hunt of Washington State, Brady? Okay. Uh, that, that, my, that's why my brother wrecked my plans. Okay. <laughs> September 15th uh, through the 25th is usually when it's uh, going high buck. Now, Washington, you know, that is one attractive hunt, if you think about it. It's, it's only in certain, certain areas. It's not, a, it's not throughout the state. But there's some areas where they allow that. September 15th through the 25th, you go in with a rifle, you got 10 days, try to put your tag on a big old buck. Go into the stats and start looking at how successful most people are. It's attractive as all get out. Rifle in September, going into the high country, the state's not dumb. They know it's a tough hunt. Those bucks disappear. The biggest, most mature bucks can be really difficult. You can still pick them up in half shoots and things like that that run right down lower in elevation. But people end up going to the top, getting into these big picturesque alpine basins. And very rarely, I mean, they fill some tags, but it's a very low success rate. Extremely low into the single digits on a deer hunt with a rifle in September. And I would say with the success, you do not see a lot of mature bucks killed during that time frame. So I get asked quite often just because I'm from there, you know, what would you prefer? Would you prefer the high buck or would you rather do the typical general season in mid to late October? My answer is always mid to late October. Now on occasion, like if you've done your scouting and you know the area and you got some some more glassable areas that are a little lower in elevation when those bucks drop down in September. Yeah, you can kill some big bucks and there's been some studs killed in high buck. Overall, so a lot of the bucks that you see killed during that time, they're not the big mature bucks. You know, like three and a half year old, four points, you know. And so, yeah, it's one heck of a fun time to be up there and make sure you got a bear tag and go for bears. And it's a great time. Hopefully still picking some berries, but it can be a really difficult hunt when it comes to trying to find those big old crusties that we're going for. They're just smart. That's literally what it comes down to. 
they're smart and they know how to disappear. But um, then you hit, start getting into that general season in October and you start seeing them kind of uh, work their way back up the hill. Mm-hmm.